0: What can we learn for our own drafts from the successes of NFBC champions? I'll ask Tanner Bell next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play
1: the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now.
0: And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Wednesday, March the 22nd. It's show number seven of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout Edition for you. Yes, I know it's Wednesday, but Tout Weekend took up a lot of, shall we say, recovery time. We'll have a feature interview with Tanner Bell from SmartFantasyBaseball.com and the co-author of the great fantasy baseball guide, The Process, discussing how to analyze main event success – the way to understand and use projections, how many fantasy stats get captured in drafts. He'll talk about starting pitchers, saves, and rule change effects, plus his boons and banes. Yeah, it's another big Tuesday Tout edition on Wednesday. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're headed into the hottest part of draft season. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout edition, Part one of our feature expert interview with Tanner Bell from SmartFantasyBaseball.com and The Process. Tanner, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. It's an exciting time of the year.
0: It is an exciting time of the year. We just finished Howl Wars draft. That's my last one of the draft season, but I know lots of people are coming up to the really busy last two weekends of spring training. There'll be tons of drafts coming. Uh, how many have you played so far this year?
1: So I do let myself get a little carried away with doing drafts, but I do try to limit my in-season work. So I've done 30 total drafts, but at the end of that, I think I'll only have four teams that have in-season moves. So I do about half of that. The rest of those are draft and holds where I don't really have to make moves, just set lineups. And then um, the other half are best balls where there's just nothing to do at all. So
0: I'm in one of those the uh, the uh, Raz Slam it's called it's a points based best ball. And, uh, we have two move periods, I think one in June and another one in July, and it's a cut down too. So, um, if you're not doing well, then you don't have to worry about, you know, latter part of the season, uh, even worrying about that one extra moves period because you, you're going to get cut, uh, at the, at the first point, there's a half cut. And then I think at the second point, there's another one. So by the end of the season or the latter part of the season, you're only working with a quarter of the teams left and, uh, I think it's a really excellent format. The idea of best ball is a really interesting it creates some interesting strategic calculations that you wanna have to try to make, plus you don't have to worry about it <laughs> once you're done. So it's a it's a kind of a win win.
1: Yeah, it is great. I'm in Slam, too and I I like best ball for that those same reasons. It lets you get the exposure to draft, get that rush, but then not have to uh sign up for twenty six weeks of moves after that. So
0: yeah, I don't know if uh, rush would have been the term I'd have chosen to to, <laughs> to describe the draft that I was in because it literally just ended last night with a 42nd round, 15th pick finally got off the board and we could all breathe a sigh of relief. But let me ask you while, while we're on the topic, Tanner, when you look at a best ball scenario like Raz Slam or any of these other best ball type of formats, how do you adjust your strategy? What are your strategic th- thoughts about how the format should influence your decision making during the draft process itself.
1: Yeah, I think my obvious my first move is to really I'm highly projection based in anything that I do so I I I start with a set of projections and then tailor those or, you know, extend it out for the point system of that format. And then I think one key thing to keep in mind in any best ball then is how you are going to set your replacement level because if you look on the surface a lot of times um or i guess i should say in any points league how you're going to set your replacement level um because i think if you just on the surface look at hitters or pitchers in a vacuum without accounting for replacement level you could come to a different conclusion about which class of player is more valuable um and then I do think best ball. Once you once you have that, um, I generally just kind of work through the top of the rankings. And um, but then there are other strategies that do come into play, which are not necessarily indicated in you know your points over replacement, if you will. Um, like I, for pitching, for example, it just strikes me that if I'm trying to make a staff of nine pitchers on a given week that are going to have good scores, I may want to try to have like five or six really good pitchers on my team. Um, but then I could probably in the draft dip out of pitching for a little bit and then go volume after pitchers, just hoping that three or four are going to have happen to have a good week um, rather than like strategically trying to consistently draft hitters and pitchers throughout. Um, so I think there's elements of strategy like that, that I do try to incorporate. Um, and then to Razzlam is interesting because you, you did mention that we do hit those two periods of moves. And so I think it makes sense there to take more risks because I can make some slight corrections uh, or educated gambles, if you will, on playing time, um, or you know, lineup outcomes that we're not really certain of today. If I'm in a pure best ball where I get no chance to make moves, I would probably make different choices on, say, like the Royals or the Reds outfield, where we just don't know who's going to end up with playing time. But if I get to make a correction in the middle of April or again in July, um, maybe I take, I try to get two of those guys, hope I land one of them, and then they're giving me those extra incremental points in that basketball format over just some, I don't know, Michael A. Taylor type player that's going to accumulate points. Maybe not anymore, but, you know, Royals days of the past when Michael A. Taylor would play every day, but um, I'm trying to improve on that steady baseline. Um, So I would take a lot of it. Surprisingly, goes back to our age old phrase of know your rules, know your format, and then think about how you can make slight tweaks to take advantage of what's in those rules?
0: I had the same thought when I, uh, my first step is to use the projections that I trust. And that's a combination of several sources like many of us do. And, you know, identify the outliers and figure out, do I like the outlier? Or do I like the main projection? You know, is the outlier explained in any way by, by anything? And once I get that, projection set up, then I just convert it to points using whatever formula the the game uses. And then I stack rank them from top to bottom. But as you mentioned, when you do that, you'll find that the top hitters are in the 800s, uh, high 700s, and the top pitchers are lucky if they took maybe 650 or something like that. And the first year I tried this, I just did it t- top down. And what I found was I was constantly chasing pitching at a level that was below the points levels of any hitters I was at. And so the last couple of years, Uh, instead of using replacement value, I just multiplied the pitcher's totals by a factor that more or less brings them into line with the hitters. And I I suspect if you did the math, and I'm not very good at math, but if you did it, it would probably work out to be a pretty similar function. And so I'm happy with that. Then the other aspect, I wonder what you think about this, there are, because of the massive size of the rosters and the fact that the computer will do your, position choosing for you on a weekly basis to uh, to optimize your score, I think sometimes people de-emphasize the idea of position value in the draft itself. And I added a column into my spreadsheet that says, what's the points difference between this guy at this position and the next guy? So the spreadsheet just searches down for the next first baseman, subtracts however many points that is, and says this guy's 61 points better than the next first baseman. But if there's an outfielder in the next slot, he might only be four points better than the next outfielder. Then I'll take the first baseman because I want the marginal gain on a positional basis. I wonder, do you care about the positional ramifications or, or do you have some kind of method for assessing it and then reacting to it?
1: I do like your idea. I don't do anything like that. Um, I, I guess I more or less eyeball if I think some kind of a fall off is coming or, or if I see three similar guys, maybe I don't pick, you know, one of them and hope that the last one makes it back to me the next time it comes back. Um, but in what I thought you were gonna, when you started to pose the question, what I thought you were gonna mention was the multi-position eligibility aspect of this, um, and how that shuffle around your lineup and maybe give you better best ball combinations that could arise because you've got these multi-eligible players. Sure. Yeah. So one thing that I had not previously done, but I added this year was I, it's not highly scientific, but for anybody that was multi-eligible, I just put 10 extra points to their name. If they were, you know, one eligible, if they were two, I did 20. Um, just kind of, again, not highly scientific, but just eyeballing, it seems like that might shift my lineup around enough to where over the course of the season, it gives me 10 points. I think it might be more than that, but I didn't want to get too carried away with it. Um, And so I did at the end, I don't know if it was just because I was searching for these players or or if it was because of that adjustment. I did end up with quite a bit of that. um, And I do like how it played out and covers me from injury as well and just to, if you to the extent you can stack some of those guys that can cover you in multiple positions you don't have to have as many backups on your team and so you can maybe be more aggressive with the the risks you want to take or or layer that over into taking more pitching i think it does open some interesting possibilities
0: i thought so too and when i set up my roster my roster blank sheet for the uh, for the draft, I decided that what I would do is for every multi-position eligible guy I got, I'd eliminate another one of those same positions. For instance, if I get a guy who's eligible at first and second, I'm going to eliminate one of my corner infield spots. And I start with five of each or something like that. And I'll add a pitcher at the end. And uh, this year I found that the, I thought the premium being um, paid by a lot of my competitors in my league was out of line with the value that the extra position actually provides. You saw, I saw people going a hundred points higher than they should have. Like they seem to be getting a hundred point premium. And I thought, well, I don't want to pay the hundred point premium because I'm not sure it's worth a hundred points and I haven't actually figured out how much it is worth. So if, if this guy's going to hand me a third base only guy who's worth a hundred points more than his third and fourth or third and second guy, I'll take it. And as a result, I found I only got about four multi-position guys just because I didn't want to pay that premium.
1: Yeah, I agree. The 100 does sound steep to me. And I wasn't sure if the 10 or the 20 was going to be enough, but I I don't know if my draft room just wasn't thinking about it. Um, The other thing that I did do was I went, because you have to manually go out and search some of the players that we just expect to get the eligibility during the season, Um, and I did add it to them as well. And so that's maybe just a hidden ounce of effort that not everybody gives. Like, um, you know, if Josh Naylor ends up playing in the outfield 10 games or Miguel Vargas is going to add second pretty soon, I went through and found who I thought to be those players.
0: Well, as long as you're thinking about it, I think that's the key thing when, when you're formulating your strategy, you just need to be aware of this kind of stuff. And I'm not I'm not a big yeah. one for saying, you know, here's the best way to deal with this. I'll offer, here's a way I have dealt with it and it has been more or less successful, but everybody's got good ideas out there. Well, not everybody has great ideas, but lots of people have great ideas. And as long as they got circulated in the environment, then uh, I'll, I'll look at them and I'll see if they're a worth my time and b I think worth the effort and then go on from there. Uh, you're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick David with Tanner Bell from Smart Fantasy Baseball and The Process. And Tanner, you and your partner Jeff Zimmerman have collaborated on a new edition of your very thorough fantasy baseball manual, which is called The Process. Uh, First, tell us about the 2023 edition and what was the process of The Process?
1: Yeah, sure. We've been doing it now. I think we might have five editions. This is our fifth, I believe. Um, And if you break down the book there's a core of it that really stays the same, which is really how to treat, um, if for lack of a better word, the process of going from the very beginnings of draft preparation all the way through to the end of wrapping up a season and taking notes and thinking about what you might do differently. Um, and then each year we do layer in and kind of we revisit those that core part of the book and see what we might want to change given what's happened in Major League Baseball. We'll also layer in like some new research uh, segments, studies, if you will. And uh, we had a lot this year because um, of the rule changes. We have a big section on the rule changes and how to account for them and what we think we're gonna do and how managers might wanna make their own manual adjustments or or thought process through handling those. And then um, we also had quite a bit I I like Jeff focused on those rule changes parts. Jeff's more or less the sabermetrician, I'll call him. And he can handle all that kind of advanced number crunching. And I, we split up duties a little bit. I really like to think strategically about how to play the game, if you will, and what uh, different tactics we might use during a draft or in the season, Um, almost absent you know, projections, sabermetrics, those kinds of considerations, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact that we are playing like a, a chess game and just how we move the pieces around is an element of strategy that we could think more about. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, there's quite a bit new and valuable and interesting this year because of those rule changes. And then there was a lot of research there that I did about observations I was making about how people play and what seems to lead to success in the main of the NFBC main event is what I was focusing on
0: there's quite a detailed chapter on valuations. And at the end of that, you say over-reliance on these tools can be a problem. A dollar value calculation is layers upon layers of assumptions, guesses, and uncertainty. And it's putting a very precise number on top of a very imprecise process. Ron Chandler's talked about this quite a bit. And and in fact, his latest venture, Babs Baseball, really embraces the imprecision by basically saying, I don't trust any of these projections at all. I trust the skills that underlie them. And it's a pretty interesting approach but we all have to use them at some point because we have to use them in the absence of anything else so what's the message here that you're trying to send about the proper use of our fantasy baseball projections
1: yeah i think maybe a little glimpse into my journey of how i've gotten to where i'm at um you know in my fantasy baseball mindset today i i probably started like a lot of us, just getting curious about, you know, I'm in this weird home league, and there has to be a way. There has to be a better way to find or create rankings to to my home league, and so I started to do research and turned up the, a lot of the legendary standings, gains points books, if you will. So I, I I know that I bought the the Art McGee book that HQ used to sell on their website and. And then around the time when i was starting that larry Schechter's book about winning fantasy baseball came out and i read that and larry had is very much the opposite of what you described for babs at least in that book is the way he explains it like a ten dollar and 20 cent player should absolutely be taken more before a ten dollar player like to that level of strictness and that really rubbed off on me going through that and reading it initially but over time i hearing things like babs and just evidence-based things and just trying to reconcile should i really be placing that level of concreteness you know in march on this should that be like things are going to happen in june and july that are going to really blow the the magnitude of that 20 cent difference out of the water and should i be trying to position myself to take advantage of things that are going to happen in the season more to me it seems like that's more the way to go than to place such absolute matter-of-factness on 20 cents preseason valuations if you will and so i've kind of it's really just i'm still highly projection based but it's more of a warning to anybody like me that may have started out at that extreme end of the pendulum to not over rely on that those 20 cents there's a lot of other factors to start to to a way um, that I think we should think more about.
0: Over the years, I've come to the same conclusions that you have, I think, and in fact that that Ron did. And my response has been to treat the projections, I, I value them and I trust them to the extent that I think they're very useful as relative measures but not valuable as absolute measures. In other words, if the projection system says that um, Gunnar Henderson is worth in this project, projection system, $5 more than Alex Bregman. And I look at that and I say, okay, I understand that. I don't believe that uh, that either of them is exactly 22 or exactly 17. I just know that this projection system and the mind behind it thinks that Gunnar Henderson is roughly, you know, 14% or 20% better than Alex Bregman yep. and should be valued accordingly, irrespective of what that actual cost is. And of course, it's easier to 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 think about in an auction setting because there are actual dollar figures attached and less easy in a snake draft setting because there are other things at play and there are valuations that are sort of loosely attached to those tiers. But I think that the idea that the projection creates a relative valuation on each player is probably more valuable to us as game players than the knowledge that, you know, like I said, it's $22 versus $17.
1: Yeah, and I think once I, I kind of view the way to use projections almost as a spectrum throughout the drafts, so if we are thinking of a snake draft earlier in the draft, I would be much more strict about what you see, because those players are going to play full time. They're usually proven commodities. There's an inherent reliability in them. But once you get towards the back end of the draft, a lot of those assumptions break down, and and i think you may there's definitely an argument to throw projections out the window and then start thinking about gameplay um i can maybe just give one quick example in my tgfbi draft at the end i think it was in my last pick i selected michael fulmer and this was well before we knew that this announcement that came out in last week or so that fulmer and boxberger were going to be the front runners for saves i just thought it was an educated guess I wanted to make that Fulmer was going to be it, just given his, him being a free agent signing, not being a young cost controlled type player. But if you were to just try to boil that down into one line on a projection, I don't know that you can do it because his value is going to swing absolutely one way or the other. If he's not the closer, he's not worth owning. If he is, it's a slam dunk to take with your last pick. And I don't think that, you know, boiling those two possibilities down to one line on my spreadsheet makes sense but there's a there's like a gameplay element to that decision that made it make sense to to go that way
0: in the book you offer an example about players who use the projections and then they once they have the projections then there seems to be some kind of adjustment that they make to reflect what their league is doing. And you argue in the book that that's not how you should be doing that. If if everybody in your league is overpaying for home runs, you argue you can't increase the value of home runs in your own projections. What are you supposed to do instead?
1: Yeah, I um, one of the things that I also do is I sell a spreadsheet that kind of will calculate values for you. And one of the most common questions I get is really similar to what you're asking here. So people will enter their settings and put the projections in, and it'll say, hey, this is telling me Aaron Judge is a $35 player, but I know in my draft he's going to go for $50. How do I make the spreadsheet tell me Aaron Judge is worth $50? And, and I think it's really a similar question to what you're asking. It's like I know my league really cares about home runs, and everybody wants to attack that category. How can I make this spreadsheet rationalize that for me, I guess, is is a way that I'm thinking about it. And I like to really think about what do you want your valuation system to do? There's like two ways to think about it. And I tell people that I think you should be viewing this as the theoretical best decision or the theoretical value of this player. The spreadsheet is following math and it's coming up with a $35 or $36 judge. If someone's going to spend 50 on him there's some other qualitative reason they're using to do that but i don't think you want to set your spreadsheet up to be able to help you rationalize that bad decision i think you want to leave it showing him as the 36 or 38 player and then you have to come up in your head and say this is telling me it's a suboptimal decision do I still have a good enough reason to go ahead and do that? And if you're doing stars and scrubs and you think you can churn the bottom of your line, there's reasons to deviate from that. But I think um, just keeping that in mind that the spreadsheets or uh, evaluation is trying to tell you theoretically what to do. um, And I don't think you want to set it up to help you make bad decisions or suboptimal decisions.
0: And the devil's advocate is going to say, yeah, but if you don't adjust the value of home runs in your projection system or your decision system, I'm not going to call it a projection system because at that point it has become a decision-making system. And if you don't adjust home runs, then you're probably going to end up with a real shortage of home runs at the end of the draft if everybody in the league is overpaying for them and you're not willing to. But I think the argument that you make in the book is... If everybody's doing that, then they're creating some kind of buying opportunity somewhere else because there's a finite amount of dollars in the in the draft pool. And if everybody's overspending by 25% on home runs, then they are undervaluing stolen bases or they're undervaluing pitcher wins or they're undervaluing something because there's not an infinite amount of money. You need to figure out where that undervaluing is taking place and go buy, you know, a dollar's worth of wins for 45 cents. And in that way, you're going to more than make up the, uh, the difference that you're not, that you're suffering because you're not acquiring enough home runs because home runs is just one of the 10 categories and you should be able to figure out a way to optimize the post home run surge pricing to benefit yourself in all the other areas, or at least in one or two of the other areas, once you identify what they are.
1: Yeah. And you can use the, this decision-making tool all throughout. To help you understand the magnitude to which you are deviating from that value. So, if you set it to show you the fifty-dollar judge, then you kind of lose your ability—that anchor—to know how far, maybe incorrectly or inefficiently, you're steering. But if you leave it at the theoretical lower value, you can still spend forty or forty-two, and if everyone else is spending fifty, you're still better off than them. Um, But you're you're correcting a little bit, and you're not quite as off path as them. So,
0: And that comes, uh, I think, partly from the capabilities of the tool, but also partly from experience that you've had in your drafts in the past, how things worked out, and so forth. And I think all of those things play into it. And when you talk about game theory and the application of game theory, I think you're getting into an area that is kind of going to be the next frontier of Uh, fantasy sports research when it comes to figuring out how do people win it's not going to be so much that they have the best spreadsheets because if there's enough of them out there and you can figure out, you know, that most of them are pretty much the same with a few outliers, then the winner is going to be the person who manages the draft the best and then subsequent to that manages gameplay in, in the season, which I think we're going to talk about later is certainly becoming more and more critical as the information advantage earlier in the draft starts to become eliminated. Uh, there's also in a related matter, you said there's, Quite uh, a bit of thinking to be done about the hitter pitcher split in the league, because the hitter pitcher split has to be set for the for the valuation engine to come to a conclusion about what any particular stat is worth, and that of course raises the question: Is what do you set it at? I think you set it at two thirds, one third hitter pitcher, but if you're if your league's setting it at 60-40, then you're valuations are necessarily going to be out and again you're going to be faced with a decision at some point do I follow the lead of the decision making tool or do I follow my understanding of how this is going on?
1: Yeah it is you're right it's much the same problem it's and I think for that reason I would set I would seek to, to estimate what you think your league is going to set it at so if you have historical measures of the draft you may want to try to type all those in or convert pitcher hitter draft picks to that value um, using some kind of calculation to figure out what the split is. And I would set it at what the league will use, what you anticipate them to use. But then one, I would go a step further, which is where I think a lot of our historic thoughts about the split have stopped. And that is, what do you think that it should be? and this is where it gets really abstract and philosophical and I'll, I'll try to do my best to explain how I would think about it. But, um, I think cause theoretically the split should be 50 50. Um, we get half our points from pitching and half our points from hitting, but there's a lot of other factors then that would go into play that would shift you away from one or the other. Like if you could get amazing pitchers in season, you could devalue it at the time of the draft. Um, and and that's where i think that we are maybe clinging too much to the past like this the split has historically been 70 30 or 65 35 but i think that was those ideas were formulated a long time ago and i think major league baseball has shifted which i think we're going to get into in a little bit like it's not quite as easy to um find pitching or stream pitching during the season anymore given some of the trends we see in baseball And if that's the case, then I think the theoretical split shouldn't really devalue pitching so much to the 70, 30, 65, 35 extent. Maybe we should be pushing it back towards 50, 50. Um, And I do think that's some of the trends that we're seeing in, in the higher stakes NFBC big competitions is that that shift really is, or that split is really shifting more towards that 50, 50 range.
0: Well, uh, in the book, you looked into NFBC data in quite a bit of detail, especially the pitching, and you used as one of your examples uh, NFBC champion Phil Dussault, and we should say right off the bat that uh, Phil Dussault has been unusually generous in explaining to the world at large how he has succeeded in this. And it is quite interesting to read it in your book or to hear about it from Phil himself. He's been on a number of podcasts and I'm going to have him on this podcast and, and oh, yeah. he's, he's very open with this. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, the the, re, the renaissance in Italy when all the artists were getting together and they weren't hiding their techniques, they were sharing them and, and improving on them. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for having done that. And, you you point out that he has taken a very unorthodox approach to his pitching, and he used that approach to win a couple of really big main jackpots, like the overall jackpots in NFBC. I think it was last year, in fact. And it's a very detailed discussion. But what did you find were the key takeaways about the Dussault method?
1: Yeah, I agree with everything you said about Phil. He is he's amazing in and how smart he is and how open of a book he is, and I think one of the key things that I observed was that I think people are missing some of the really important messages and tactics that he used, because he does talk a lot about projections and how he has a model or a system that kind of tells him who the best players are, that he's not really, like, I'll just often take a really public projection system that's reliable and use that and phil's doing these layers of upon layers of improvements to that to make what he thinks the projections are better and i have no doubt that he has improved on them but i think that's what got a great deal of the attention whereas meanwhile he'll also say in the same breath that he really prioritized pitching and he has this um this belief that he wants to kind of stream pitching from his roster rather than from the free agent wire and that's what he did that year that he had such success and i think compounding that that was the year coming out of that was the first full season after the pandemic shortened season and if you look at like pitching stats that year right there that was the lowest point in starting pitcher depth if you will that's a qualitative assessment of mine but i think that it's arguable that that's true so phil steered into this if you will and he over invested in pitching the year that pitching was arguably its weakest and i think that's one of the qualitative factors that gave him such a huge edge um and that is something that i kind of have observed from him and started to model as well because I, I tend to agree and it goes a lot of the things that we're talking about there's like this element of gameplay that phil has as well not just the projection-based improvements that he's making um that i think a lot of us could learn from and improve and do um do better uh if we just kind of layer on this additional level of thought on top of the projections like like we're saying
0: You pointed out that uh, Phil, in his successful drafts, really turned things uh, upside down as far as what sort of standard approach to these uh, these snake draft tactics are, which is almost everybody. There's an argument about: Do I take a couple of starting pitchers early? Do I take a relief pitcher early? And But in, for the most part, I'm still going to layer it on pretty thick uh, in pitching and uh, hitting at the top. And Phil just said, no, I'm not. I'm." What did he get, like seven or eight pitchers in his first nine draft picks or something like that? Because he really thinks that that's where his advantage lies. How did that work? What was his thought process? Uh, I know I'm asking you to speak on his behalf, but you certainly looked into it uh, in great depth.
1: Yeah, I think it it has a lot to do with the fact that the replacement level or the type of player that you can pick up in the season has changed over time. So it, it may have been true, you know, 10, 20 years ago that, you know, every starter in major league baseball was throwing 180 innings and you could go out and do, a you know, maybe league average pitcher was, you know, streamable enough. And, and there was this great amount of depth that, because people had observed for a long time that you can go out and stream pitching. I'm sure that was founded in some kind of fact. It wasn't just wrong from the get-go. But over time, as Major League Baseball has shifted, these trends of not letting starters go three times through the lineup if they're a marginal pitcher, that really greatly reduces their chance of a win. Um, then we were coming out of like that pandemic-shortened season, and I'm speculating a little bit, but maybe Major League Baseball teams didn't want to assume a bunch of risk in their young arms they want to shorten the they want to say we're going to cut them off at 80 85 pitches we're not going to let them go too far into the game we don't want injuries coming off of the season where people didn't build up properly whatnot so i think that compounded and even further reduced what we're seeing in the replacement level or what you could actually stream and i do that's another real element that ties into what we're talking about which is we look at these often preseason valuations and we forget about that, that very first day of the season, they're pretty much thrown out the window. And what you use to set your lineup at that point is what do I think is going to happen in the next four days? Um, And, and I don't know that we properly bridged that abrupt change in decision making. Um, And I think that's what Phil has done a lot better job of doing with, and so if, if you now think that I cannot stream pitching during the season, then I know I have to get pitching in the draft. And then I think there was another interesting effect last year that would have even exacerbated it even more, which is the NLDH. So then last year we introduced 15 more full-time hitters, if you will, theoretically. So that would have uh, made hitting more prevalent in the league on the free agent wire than we would have been used to. And so that I think is also would have pushed the split a certain way or, or, or what you should do. So if it's harder to get pitching in the season and it's now easier to get hitting, I think it tells you even more, go get more pitching in the draft, go past what you're comfortable doing there. Cause you can still probably make up hitting during the season because of this, you know, the NLDH or even I think another one is the, um, MLB uh, platooning more so it's really hard for us to, to capture all of the stats in our lineup that we used to be able to of teams just trotting out the right fielder every day and now you know that's two guys and so there's just more stats that you can go and get on the wire in hitting than you can in pitching.
0: And as a result, there's more reason to have, as Phil suggests, or as Phil does, as a matter of fact, have all the pictures you want for your regular starts. I mean, he has pictures that he starts all the time, like we all do. And then he, like all of us, has pictures he wants to stream depending on matchups and home parks and away parks and all the rest of that kind of stuff. The difference being that for the longest time, we acquired those streamable pitchers out of the free agent pool, use them for their, you know, one week of utility, throw them out and replace them with somebody else for the next week. And I think if I'm hearing you correctly, what Phil says is no, I want those streamers at the draft because they're going to be better than the ones that I'm going to get under any circumstances by picking them weekly out of the pool because the pool is weaker than it used to be for the variety of reasons that you suggested. And that makes me wonder going back now to what we were talking about, about valuations based on how many pitchers and how many hitters we draft is one of the arguments I've heard in favor of doing it the way we do it is because there are all these pitchers out there and, all of a sudden, now I'm starting to think, well, yeah, in sheer quantity, there's all kinds of pitchers available at the end of a 14 of 9 a draft, but that doesn't mean they're all rosterable. You know, the, the there's a huge co- cohort of pitchers in the pool who are not rosterable, which means really when you're trying to figure out what the value of those players in the pool is. You have to eliminate all those guys from consideration first, unless they do something to change your mind about them and focus in on the, the thin band of, of actual talented pitchers that, that is available in that free agent pool. And because it's thin, it's going to be more costly. It's going to be more rare. And Phil seems to have realized that and said, I'm not going to go there. I'll go get my hitters there instead, as you suggested. It's actually pretty, pretty interesting and brilliant when you start mulling it over.
1: Yeah, I think so. I agree. Like, I I didn't think of it proactively like he did, but in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. And that's where I I do think that he did create this huge advantage that now a lot of us are um, seeing the light there and and taking that into account.
0: And when everybody sees it, everybody starts doing it, it becomes the new norm. And then Phil has to go off and find out, like, (laughs) change it again and figure out. And if, if, if it overbalances the other way to to the point where, you know, two thirds of the pitchers are all taken within the first ten rounds and somebody's going to, you know, zig while everybody else is zagging and come back and take advantage of the resulting deoptimization of pitchers by loading up on hitters and figuring out some other way to get their pitching talent. Tell me, Tanner, how do you think this applies, this thinking applies insofar as auction drafts are concerned when you're looking at how to set your own team roster, should we be looking at sort of 50% for hitters, 50% for pitchers, even though it's 14 to nine for the same reasons that, that Phil is doing this, that you want to get nine terrific pitchers or nine above average pitchers and not leave yourself to the vagaries of the end game, or especially to the free agent pool after the draft?
1: Yeah, that is a really good question. The, because as I, you know, if I sit in an auction now, it's, um, it's frustrating to me because you know in a lot of auctions you draft your starting lineup via the auction mechanism and then once your starting lineup is filled you would go and maybe have a snake draft for your bench players and if it were me i would want to lobby for can i take 11 pitchers in the auction part and only draft 12 hitters Um, but a lot of there's rules in place to usually prevent you from doing that but that that's what i would do that's what i did like in my snake tgfbi draft if you will so I, i'd rather load up on the pitching so then yeah you're you're in this weird decision making process of do i still jam that same allocation of pitching resources into just the nine pitching bodies then and try to get more there and then it, it i think inadvertently the auction mechanisms prevent you from doing something aggressive, like, like Phil did. Um, So your only mechanism there is to spend more on the pitchers that you have. So maybe you would, you know, push some more of the money into your top six players. Um, I don't know, or or, or go all throughout pitchers, just spend more closer to that 50-50 to build that depth up and sacrifice your starting hitters just knowing that you can then um, hopefully make up for it in season.
0: And all of this assumes, I think, that we're playing 15-team mixed or 12-team yes, mixed or something yeah. where, the, where the talent pool is a bit deeper. I know uh, I just finished uh, AL Tout, and I was thinking about this because I was reading your book while I was uh, preparing, and I've tried to figure out in my mind, how could I apply this profitably to my own uh, draft yeah. that's coming up to this auction that's coming up? And I didn't see it. And the re- and the reason why is because one of the key predicates of making this decision in Phil's view, and as you've explained it, is that there's plenty of hitting in the pool. And when you're playing right. American League only, there's not plenty of hitting in the pool. After not those 14 yeah. guys go times 12, what's left is a bunch of sort of third string catchers and maybe the odd guy who comes in during the season from the minor leagues. So I, I don't think that it would work then, but... You said, and this is something that does happen in only leagues especially, is that fantasy managers understand and use middle relievers with excellent skills to buttress the uh, their uh, pitching staffs. And you say that the interest in them should have risen in these other formats, in these uh, shallower formats, 15 team mixed in particular. Even guys who don't get saves have value, but it seems to me you believe that managers are not doing that for the most part
1: yeah i what you're alluding to is there's a study in the book where i kind of went through and i tried to break down the the, the league winning league caching and then even the overall winning managers just to try to see could i tell if they were using this middle reliever strategy at all and i th- i think i ran into maybe just lack of good enough information maybe because it's very hard to differentiate a manager's intent i don't i don't necessarily have that outlined in the stats about if they were pursuing a talented middle reliever with a chance of saves or if they were pursuing a talented middle reliever that they knew didn't have saves but maybe lucked into saves or if they were going after a same reliever that just they didn't expect to get saves and they didn't get saves. I couldn't quite parse that intent. Sometimes I think, you know, you know, if you had the choice, you would choose somebody with a chance of saves, and not being able to parse their intent and what they were trying to do, I could, I couldn't reach a definitive conclusion. Um, but people talk about that, and it seems like a good idea in theory. I just couldn't prove it out uh, like definitively. Um, and I, but the one thing that I do say in there too is that if you've resigned yourself to just trying to use a middle reliever, I think that it may be the analysis also creates some kind of, I don't know if confirmation bias is the right word, but if you've resigned yourself to needing to use middle relievers, then maybe your team already isn't very good because that's not anybody's plan going into it, right? Your plan would be to have good starters or have good relievers that are going to get saves. And if you've already knocked your expectation down to, well, I just got to salvage this somehow <laughs> and try to get ratios, you already are in trouble. So yeah. I don't know if you're going to show up in the successful managers anyway. So it's a, I didn't reach the conclusions I wanted to reach, but um, it's, it's interesting. I wish we had a little better data to see how
0: people were doing it. Well, maybe in the future. But yeah, when I was reading it, I thought, yeah, anybody who's in that position is using middle relief as a stop the bleeding kind of approach yeah. because something's gone horribly wrong and it could be nothing of their own fault. They, they have a, an excellent yeah. pitching staff and three guys get hurt right, right out of the gate and, and your two closers, well, you had Edwin Diaz for instance, and then the, or whoever else you got stops getting saves for whatever reason. So in your research, you talked about having looked at how winners win and when it comes to saves, how do winners do saves?
1: Yeah. So one of the studies that I did there was I just tried to really take qualitative factors, like who drafted Josh Hader last year, who drafted Liam Hendricks, like those top closers off the board. And then I tried to figure out, well, what average spot did they finish in in the league? And it did yield some really interesting things. Um, And then I also kind of did that in the overall, um, you know, there's almost competing dynamics at play. It did seem like to do well in the overall, you really didn't get your saves from the haters and the Hendricks. I think probably because that's a huge acquisition cost that you had to play or had to pay to, to, to acquire them in the draft. Um, but at the same time, having a Hendricks or a hater did seem to improve your chances of cashing or winning your league. Um, Which I thought was really interesting, especially Hader, because a lot of the narrative this year would be, well, that's why you don't invest heavily in closers because Josh Hader didn't have a good year. But I think what happened there, why those teams still did well in the league and cashed is that they those owners got what they wanted out of him, which was 36 saves or whatever he ended up with, even though it was a rocky road to get there. so then in the in the overall, you did also kind of see that like the, the Helsleys and the Clay Holmes, those closers that kind of came out of nowhere, weren't drafted, but did produce a decent amount of saves. That did well in the overall. But strangely enough, in like the league, that didn't seem to be that huge um, differentiation of a factor. So actually like owning a Josh Hader put you slightly up above in the standings. Some of those closers that you would have thought, Oh, somebody landed play homes for sure. Um, They're going to finish higher in the standings. So the, the effect in the league appears to be more of, you may just want to be like locking in and having guaranteed certain saves to some extent, even if you have to pay a lot to get it. Um, But if you do want to win the overall, you have to allow yourself some more profit potential, I think. So, guys that showed well in the overall were like, um, the Kenley Jansons, um, and I think Emmanuel class A. and those, those were the closers that were kind of at the end of that. Definitive set of closers, I think, if you will. So the cheaper frontline closers in the draft last year, um, those guys ended up earning a lot of saves and so they gave those folks in the overall more profit potential than taking the hater would have. So I think it it makes sense if you think through the the different benefits of locking in saves, but still allowing yourself room for some um, way to gain an advantage in that in the overall competition.
0: I think I know what you mean that the, there's a combination when you're making those kind of player choices if you it helps me to think of them in pairs. So I've got a second round pick and I've got a seventh round pick and I can take a seventh round hitter and a second round closer or vice versa. And then what I'm asking myself is, where's the profit potential in either case? And what's the opportunity cost in both cases, which is a offshoot of, of that profit potential. And when you look at it that way, it really makes a lot more sense to go with the closer a little farther down the line for that reason. And I think that there's, even though a a top notch closer tends to be a relatively reliable asset, they're not as reliable as a second round hitter, barring injury. A second round hitter is very unlikely to crater Whereas all it takes is a manager to get mad at a guy for blowing two saves in a week and all, you know, then he, even if he's only out for four weeks before he goes back to the job, you've now lost four weeks worth of his primary source of value is saves. Yeah. The innings are nice, but they're relatively insignificant. I think that all of that kind of stuff kind of mitigates against taking closers early. And if we've come to no other conclusion <laughs> during this, I think that's a pretty valuable lesson for our listeners to consider, uh, Geez, this has been really interesting so far, Tanner. I knew it would be. Uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk more about the studies that you did in the latter part of uh, the book, The Process, having to do with rotisserie capture rates and some other really interesting ways of looking at the game. Uh, give, give yourself a break, and we'll come back in a couple of minutes. Tanner Bell's website is smartfantasybaseball.com, and he's a co-author of the fantasy baseball guide called The Process. Coming up, we have part two with Tanner, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus looks at the five teams in the National League West, including tenuous save situations in Colorado and Los Angeles, and turmoil in the outfields in Arizona, San Diego, and San Francisco. In the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at 2023's end-of-season first round. Not the same names you'd expect. And in alternative gaming, Matt Beagle. Hey, Matt Beagle used to be the American League news reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. He's also an expert on points leagues, and he'll have his 2023 Points League Guide for Hitters. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have facts and flukes, performance evaluations, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, pitchers and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse. And injury analysis in the big hurt. Plus, there's fantasy baseball research and all kinds of tools to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Abbott here with Tanner Bell from Smart Fantasy Baseball and The Process, his book with Jeff Zimmerman covering how to be a better fantasy baseball player. And gosh, uh, it can't help but make you a better fantasy baseball player if you read this stuff, because it's really very well thought out. It's stood the test of time in some of the core elements. And there's all this new stuff that we're going to talk about right now. Tanner, welcome back.
1: Thank you. Good to be back.
0: In the process, uh, written with Jeff Zimmerman, you also have some other interesting studies of fantasy league data I mentioned uh, a moment ago. One such study is about rotisserie capture rates, and this is something actually the people were talking about at, uh, at Tout Wars. We've, but before we get into the details, what does the term rotisserie capture rates mean?
1: Yeah, it, it's a measure of how us as a fantasy league as a whole can capture Major League Baseball's stats and get them into our final standings. Um, and I think using saves is a good way to illustrate the problem or the the concept, if you will. So if you go back in time over the last five years in Major League Baseball, the number of saves every year doesn't really change that much. Like the game is what the game is. There's going to be so many games that end closer than three or four runs and that number of saves doesn't fluctuate too much. Uh, but our ability then as a 15-team league, if you will, to know and anticipate which guys are going to earn those saves and how are we going to roster them and fit them into our nine pitcher slots without trying to sacrifice too much starters, our ability to capture those saves has gone down greatly because MLB's like... Sp- spreading how those saves happen. We don't really have transparency into who's going to get those. And so it's been a lot harder on us to do this capturing, if you will.
0: You mentioned saves. What other categories have showed the most variance in capture rates over the last few seasons?
1: Yeah, I looked really at all of them, but in the book, the ones that made it into the book, because they're, they were more interesting to think about. It was wins, stolen bases, and then the safes that we mentioned.
0: I saw that, and my first thought was that in all three instances, I wondered if the variance was explained at least in part, Tanner by the influence of the manager in the outcome rather than the influence of the, just the batter versus the pitcher and the striking of the ball, et cetera, because a a win depends on a manager leaving a pitcher in or putting him in, in a situation, ditto for saves. And of course, red light, green light on the, on the base paths. These are managerial affected stats. And I wonder if that's why they become more variable over time when it comes to how many of them we can actually get onto our stat sheets
1: yeah, that's that's an interesting point managerial. and there um, those are also the areas where tendencies have shifted lately more so than you know, the tendency has always been to want to hit home runs or want to drive in runs or score runs. but some of these other you know ways we deploy, you're right, the way a manager deploys a reliever or the saber metric decision making in a stolen base, that's fluctuated in recent years.
0: You mentioned that saves have become more distributed and therefore more variable, and we're getting less of them. What did you learn about steals in that regard?
1: Yeah, um, and maybe just to illustrate the the magnitude of saves is really different than some of the other ones. So if you went back to 2017, we as a 15-team league captured about 72% of Major League Baseball's saves, whereas... In, Last year, it was down to just 54%. So there's like a huge shift in our ability to anticipate and roster saves. And so steals were not quite as significant, but there was still an interesting observation that came out of steals. So while saves have been relatively consistent in how frequently they happen in baseball, steals have not. So since 2017, stolen bases have been going down every single year and our ability to capture them during that time frame did stay somewhat consistent so it's somewhere between like um 58 to 60 percent is what we saw so steals were going down but our ability to anticipate them didn't really change so there were less of them overall but last year was really interesting because steals went back up um in baseball but our ability to capture them went down so I mentioned it was 50 to 60, 58 to 60% was what we were capturing last year. That was down to 55. Um, and so the point that I was trying to make there in the book is that if your analysis about stolen bases was well, MLB stolen bases went back up, so we're good. And we can kind of forget about steals and we don't have to, you know, pay so much attention to them. I don't know that that was really would have been the right conclusion because we captured less of them in 2022 than we did in the four years previously so even though steels went back up as a whole i think it may have still been just roughly as difficult if not more to get those into our lineups
0: i know we're probably supposed to talk about this later, but I'll ask you now, because of the rules changes affecting stolen bases, or that I should say we expect will uh, influence stolen bases with the bag size and the pickoff rules and what have you, how do you expect the steel percentage to change? You, do, uh, I think we can agree that will be more steals, but does that make it mean that we're going to ha- find it easier to get our share of them?
1: Yeah, I that's a great question. I obviously think steals are going to go up. But our ability to capture them, I think, I would guess it might stay on par with about where we were last year. I think the the reason why they became more difficult to capture is because of the prevalence of platooning in Major League Baseball now. So I think we often see it, you know, it's really hard, it seems like, to find a full-time playing outfielder. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of really good teams like the Giants and the Rays and whatnot, they're really doing a good job of platooning and playing up that handedness advantage in their lineups. And I think as that increases, it's harder for us to apply those steals, right? Because we're less inclined to want to roster anyone on the short side of a platoon. So to the extent anyone on the short side of a platoon is a base stealer, we're probably not going to capture that or else we're sacrificing a lot of other things in our, in our, um, you know, rotisserie categories. So I would guess that while steels are definitely going to go up that we're, we're still going to have that problem.
0: When I was thinking about it, I also thought that a lot of it's going to depend on the distribution of the steels. And I would think that if the, if the overall steel pool grows and the benefits of that growth travel disproportionately to the already good stolen base guys, I would wager that our ability to roster more of the steels, the percentage oh, yeah. of steels will go up. But if it's distributed like it is now exactly the same, then you'd expect exactly the same outcome. So if if uh, Cedric Mullins goes from 30 to 40, all 10 of those new bags are going to end up on somebody's roster because he's, he's on everybody's roster and ditto on down the line. And then if the distribution is more evenly spread so that everybody gets their three or four, then all the ones that we're missing now because of platoon guys or occasional runners that we don't tend to roster will probably remain unchanged and therefore will uh, not make their way onto our stat sheets. And I think we're not going to know that till the end of the year, or maybe halfway through this year, at least.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I would agree with you there.
0: Wins are always something of a bugaboo for fantasy managers, causes arguments every year about changing the stat and getting rid of it, all of these kind of things. It feels to me like we should expect fewer and fewer pitcher wins finding their way onto our fantasy stat sheets just because of the way major league pitchers are used. And you mentioned uh, the younger guys don't even get to the five innings anymore. Uh, Is this going to be a continuing decline as far as how many wins find their way onto our stats?
1: Yeah, I would have expected that it was but i I was a little surprised by the results last year it does seem like we hit a bottom uh the year after the shortened pandemic season and things did come back up uh last year from the year before and so i kind of mentioned earlier that i think it may have had to do with you know that not being a normal the, the shortened season not being normal and then um You know, teams maybe being conservative, not want to take on aggressive innings counts or pitch counts with players following that. Um, And we did see that it corrected and things went kind of back to they're still lower from where they were, you know, five years ago or so. But um, they went up in, in a more of a positive direction, indicating that we did a better job of capturing wins last year. And again, maybe just to throw out percentages, th- these are much smaller than what I was talking about on saves. So the, we're talking like a window between forty and forty-four percent here. Some rough fluctuation in there, um, but um, so we we it does seem like maybe teams bounced pitch counts back up, or um, or at least we did a better job of identifying who might have wins, and, and we we did capture more than last year.
0: This discussion leads us naturally to how starting pitchers are being used in the larger sense. And I know that you had an article in the book focusing on starting pitcher usage and you looked at the connection between the pitch counts of starts and wins. Again, my instinctive expectation would be a pretty straight line correlation between pitch counts, starts and wins. But God knows my instincts have been wrong before. So how do pitch counts correlate with win counts?
1: Yeah, there is um, a strong correlation, but there is like some amount of a hurdle that you have to get over to to increase to get a chance for a win. Um, and so uh, what I did was I just kind of bucketed pitch counts and then did the pitcher get a win or not get a win. And, uh, um, you know, fully admitting that this doesn't really take into account the quality of the opponent or anything, but just pitch count. Is the only variable we're trying to look at here. If a pitcher only goes 75 pitches or less, they only have a 13% chance of getting a win. And if they go, you know, pushing that 95, 99 pitch count level, then the amount rises to 37%. And so I think that maybe the lesson there is if you have a good reason to know that a pitcher is being handled softly. Or they're coming back from injury, or they're just ramping up, or or they they aren't gonna really exceed that 75 pitch count level that you should probably look elsewhere because you're not you have very small chance of getting a win out of that that start.
0: Seems like something you'd want to know for daily play as well. Something that popped into my mind when I was reading that is that There might be a skew in the data because pitchers who are pitching poorly tend not to get big pitch counts, and pitchers who are pitching well tend to get higher pitch counts and probably tend to get wins because they're pitching well. And I wondered if you're, in in your collection or in your analysis of these data, whether you've considered that aspect of it, that there's a sort of a self-selection process in place for lower pitch counts and non-wins.
1: Yeah, I do agree. That's I did not remove that effect. I agree that's definitely in there. because, And that's why I arbitrarily cut it off around 99, because if you go higher than that, like if you go to 120 or whatever, then the, I can't remember the exact number of the win probability, but it's like very high, like 80% or something. And you're, I think you're, you're right. It's that selection bias of that pitcher's dominating. Of course, they're going to get a win this day, and they let them go. 120
0: uh, pitches. And they tend to be older, more established just better pitchers. You know, it's it's pretty rare to see a young pitcher go 120 pitches, but it's it's not common for anybody anymore, but if if you if you somebody said to you hey, a pitcher last night threw 120 pitches, your first thing would be Oh, Verlander, Verlander Scherzer, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you Lance Lynn would it be, you know, some guy who's been around for a million years and knows how to pitch and and 120 pitches is not always the same from one pitcher to the next as far as effort levels and those kinds of things that we know about. Um, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Tanner Bell from Smart Fantasy Baseball and The Process and in the book, Tanner well, it'll come as no surprise to listeners of this pod that the saves landscape is changing. We talked about saves earlier, and the change seems more seismic than simple erosion. What's the latest about the saves landscape from your research?
1: Yeah, so in in this uh, analysis, what I did was I kind of bucketed relievers into the quantity of saves that they got, and so, for example, in this last year, more relievers we're in the one to four save bucket than ever before. Um, Similarly, more than ever before, we're in like a five to 14 range. And whereas if you went to the other end of the spectrum, pitchers earning more than 15 or more than 25, those numbers were lower than ever. And it's really, I think just another illustration of the same thing that we were talking about, which is why it's harder to capture these is because of that lower, level, it really seems like teams are willing to throw one or four saves to anybody, and they're not really concentrating on that much into the 25-save guys as much.
0: You know what I'd like to know is I'd like to know... Out of all the saves that happen, how many of them could be classified as high leverage saves? You know that there's a awful lot of saves where it's the bottom of the order. You're up three. That the team is fairly weak, anyways. You know you're pitching against the Tigers in the bottom of the ninth, and and you know it's the it's their seven, eight, nine hitters. And yeah, you get a save, but <laughs> you know if you started separating out saves into hard saves and easy saves, whether we'd see, I'm sure we would see a bias in favor of really good pitchers at the hard end of the spectrum and, and the lesser pitchers getting all those weak ones or easy ones. And to me, that just kind of sings out for something, some kind of change in our rules to eliminate just saves per se as a category. Although I know people say, yeah, it's all part of the randomness. It adds fun because it's a little less predictable than if you do it some more finely tuned way.
1: Yeah i am in that category i think i find it um, painful yet fun probably <laughs> similarly i like two catcher leagues that kind of thing um but in your 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 curiosity question i i wonder then if there could be maybe even another dimension of because we talk about closers on bad teams and bad teams still get saves and the save chances are still roughly you know not totally disparate from a pirates closer for a you know dodgers closer i wonder if there is inconsistency then if we did go to that what you're talking about like does a good team have more or less low leverage versus high leverage breakdown and then is there any opportunity like we know the ray this is the raise high level guy and this is the raise low level guy and i wonder if there'd be a better way to anticipate how teams are gonna allocate saves if we got into that level of detail
0: well and it seems like that would be a two-part thing which would be a does the team use its its relievers to that to that method and b how many of them how many of their wins are like that and uh, i looked into this a few years ago for a separate reason and what i found was 50 percent of wins result in saves and therefore teams with more wins get more saves and it was it was pretty much as simple as that, but I never looked into what percentage of each t- of a bad team's wins are um, close but enough to to generate those kind of saves and, and versus a uh, high win teams that might get a lot of soft saves. and if the management is inclined to not pitch their best closer in a three run bottom of the order situation, it's valuable information to have. But uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't been, a, it hasn't been compiled yet. So it uh, may be something for the off season or something to look at this season, I guess. Uh, and finally, Tanner, in the book, you wrote about uh, MLB rules changes, and there's certainly been a lot of informed opinion on the expected effects of the rules changes, but some of the informed aren't quite as informed as we might have hoped. And uh, I know you guys also looked at how the changes will affect fantasy baseball, which is something that's often not quite touched on in the uh, discussion of these things, which of the new rules have you found will be the most consequential for fantasy baseball and why?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's probably a toss up between the shift change and the resulting like batting average changes that are going to come of that. And then the stolen base rules. And what I think is interesting maybe this is starting to tie back to some of the discussions we had about Phil earlier, you know, where he, he was willing to kind of go out on a limb and take a stance one way or the other about where he thought there was a market and efficiency in systematically in our, the way we were playing the game in a certain year. I think we have another opportunity here that might be analogous to that. And, if if a, if a manager is willing to invest time and think you know real critically about how this is going to affect you know the landscape as a whole um, or even down to the individual players because i think the batting average change is not going to be universal right um and if you're willing to take a stand and be aggressive in how you want to how you think it's going to affect things i think we have an a chance to give yourself a really big advantage that you know we don't really have this opportunity every year
0: Well, Tanner, very interesting. As I said, Uh, always look forward to talking with you. And I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at boons and baines. We've changed it uh, this year a little bit, at least for the uh, pre-draft period. We're going to look at early round, mid round, and late round boons and baines rather than just pitchers and hitters. Uh, Let's start with your boons. These are players you think look like good value relative to their round. Uh, Let's start with the batter boons. Who's an early round batter you think could be a boon in drafts for the next couple of weekends?
1: Yeah, so I just to maybe ground level set, I defined early as I was thinking through this as a 15 team league, which I always tend to do. Yeah, And then I was I defined a player range early as first through 10 rounds, then 11 through 20 and 21 to 30. Um, Okay. so the early round batter boon that I picked was Alejandro Kirk Um, and maybe just to kind of illustrate a lot of these guys I'm almost applying qualitative factors that aren't necessarily included in the projection, kind of, you know, a theme that I talk a lot about and on Kirk, I, he's a catcher and I'm a believer that catchers are often misvalued. um, Like good hitting catchers. I would be always willing to take more than most of the crowd, if you will. So he's already got a bump up for that. But then I think it's also interesting that he has playing time upside Um, you know, they, they have another good catcher in Toronto, but if something were to happen to Jansen or DH at bats were to open up, we know the Jays would be willing to go even higher on Kirk. And so he kind of shows as a pretty good value, even at a 400 plate appearance projection, but then you kind of have to account for there's, there's a built-in chance of upside that might be there. That's not there on every other catcher. Um, so I like that. And so I'll, I'll say, uh, Kirk.
0: Yeah, Alejandro Kirk's an interesting guy because I don't think they're crazy about his catching. They talk lots about how he's come along and he's getting better, but the fact is he's still not a terrific catcher defensively. And so if they have a chance to give him some DH at-bats, I think that's all plus for him, not only because of just the count, but the fact is, catchers get hurt and DHs tend not to get hurt, so there's another possibility, not of additive playing time, but a loss of subtractive situations. Uh, How about in the mid-rounds, who do you think is a batter who could be a boon? I
1: picked Ian Happ here, and I see, maybe to tie in some HQ mantras that I like. Yes, please. He's He's displayed a lot of different skills over time. And so he theoretically owns all these different capabilities of hitting for a decent average, hitting for power, stealing bases. He's going to hit really high in that lineup. Um, And so I think, especially with the shift change, um, you know, there's a lot of factors that give him, Uh, possibility of putting everything together and having one of his best seasons. So, uh, you have.
0: And in the late rounds, who's a batter boon?
1: This is a cop out. I've said it a few times, but I am fascinated by the Kansas City outfield. And no, I cannot pick one. But I think they all have huge profit potential because they're kind of being drafted at this weird 350 to 400 plate appearance level, but I don't really believe that that's how they're going to distribute it all season long. So if, if someone had an educated guess about who's going to emerge um, from that outfield, you know, of this Omar Oliveira's Kyle Isbell, uh, even drew waters, Nate Eaton. Um, I, it seems like a good place to, to take uh calculated risks because you may end up with someone that gets 500 or 600 plate appearances if you pick the right one and hopefully we could tell from early season usage about uh if someone has a leg up but i don't think their price right now is prohibitive so i think it it's a good place to take a shot
0: i know i took a couple of shots in a Raz slam because you know you're in round 48 and you might eh, you know what the hell Yep. Over to the pitchers. How about an early round pitcher who could be a boon?
1: I picked Justin Verlander here. Um, and I know he's old, but it's another one of these stories where I think there might be playing time upside. You know, he was our example of someone that might go 120 inning or uh, pitches in a start, but I think he has upside in innings. Um, most of the projections, I think, have him around 170. Um, but if anyone was going to go, two ten at his age, I think he has just as good a chance as any. And so if he can stay healthy and he does have this air about him that he's kinda invincible, um, absent the one Tommy John season, yeah. that I think he could push things that far. And so I think there's some uh gain potential even though he's going so early, I think he could um be a valuable pick.
0: I mentioned this recently in a discussion I was having with somebody, it might've been here on the show, talk about a lot of baseball at this time of year and the the Verlander Tommy John came up and I wondered if not only did he benefit from getting the surgery, but I wondered if he just benefited in a more holistic way by not having to pitch for a year. You know, pitching yeah. is a cumulative kind of thing and, and it's knees and hips and rot- all the rotational muscles and all that kind of stuff and for some amount of time he just didn't have to do it. And it put me in mind of uh, Marshawn Lynch of the Seahawks one year just said, I'm not doing this this year. I'm just going to rest for one entire year. And when he came back, he was obviously refreshed and very effective. And I wonder if Justin Verlander might have benefited indirectly from just not pitching for the time that he was recovering from the surgery and it may have given him a an extended lease on life. Uh, and he takes really good care of himself like Tom Brady, you know, one of these guys who's Real into workouts and plyometrics and all that kind of stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if Justin Verlander wins another Cy Young, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. How about a mid-round pitcher who could be a boon?
1: Yeah, I came up with Alex Cobb here, which I don't think is a surprise to if anybody's been watching what has happened to him in ADP recently. So if you looked back a couple of weeks before the main event draft started, he was going around pick 220, and he's up almost 40 picks now into around the 180 range in those main events. Um but I I choose him here because I think that jump is validated. Um he's he's healthy now. He's throwing. He if anything he improved in the second half last year. And so if if that carries over he may have some upside in, in that um in that in his projection. And uh if if you're in a home league or whatever, where people aren't slicing and dicing ADP into a one-week recent period, I think he's a good pitcher to keep in mind that you can probably get as a good value in uh, in the mid-rounds.
0: Where do you stand on the idea of looking at organizations as, as a factor in making your decisions about guys that Alex Cobb, San Francisco, San Francisco has developed a reputation for for dealing with pitchers just like him and improving them and getting them back out on the mound. And we've seen it lots. Do you take that into consideration in your own decision-making?
1: I would say yes. It's definitely, it's not anything I've quantified, but it would definitely be enough to give the benefit of the doubt. And then I think there are, like they have, the Giants specifically, I think have a proven track record of not only performance, but it's justified because I think you often see that pitchers will have a, a velocity bump uh, after they go there. I think Mania is another one that has that this year. Right. Um, and I'll I'll use it in the inverse as well. So I'm a Tigers fan. And I know that the Tigers have been in the stone ages of player development and, um, you know, using analytics on any level the last 10 years, if you will. And I think it's interesting that they now have like a Giants um, front office person running the Tigers. So I do think there might, to the extent that he's going to maybe copy or replicate some of those ideas um, that the Giants were using, I think maybe now we can say, well, let's look for some of that to start happening in Detroit, and maybe follow some of these trees, um, if you will, and maybe start to exploit that a little bit as a possibility.
0: And of course, I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the show, but uh, another Tanner, Tanner Smith of BaseballHQ.com, he wrote the pitcher arsenal report has been hired by the Detroit Tigers to join their pitcher evaluation staff. So they seem to be taking some sort of steps towards uh, getting themselves firmly into the 21st century. Uh, Who's a late round pitcher who could be a boon?
1: (laughs) Chose another giant here, I guess. Uh, Taylor Rogers, I picked, um, and this is a drum that I'll probably continue to beat. Uh, I don't know that we, as a as a fantasy players as a whole, really properly account for the team dynamics in selecting closers, and I just think there's a chance that Taylor Rogers gets way more saves in San Francisco than everybody's expecting. Um, you know, he's, he's signed a free agency contract, so his cost is theoretically pretty fixed. Whereas if they start or continue to give Duvall, you know, exclusive run at saves, that's going to cost them a lot more money. I think last year I was wrong because I was betting against Duvall and picking Jake McGee. It seemed like early in the year, the Giants still wanted to try to get the saves to like the Jake McGee and Tyler Rogers, um. And so I'm just kind of thinking we might be misreading that situation a little bit and that the Taylor Rogers may uh, exceed expectations there. And he's going real late after 300, I think.
0: Yeah, and there, another subject of discussion at Tout Wars was this idea that teams are now leaning towards their veterans to be the closers because they don't want to pay their young real solid sort of relief pitchers. I think the name that was talked about most was Joanne Duran in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And, and the discussion was, is he going to get a lot of saves? And they said, well, Minnesota has a disincentive to give him lots of saves because they don't want to pay him extra for the saves when they come to an arbitration uh, disagreement or discussion. So there is that as well. Uh, let's go to the Baines now. Tanner, how about an early round batter who could be a bane?
1: I picked Jordan Alvarez here. It's a a little bit of a hunch. It's a uh, if there's smoke, there could be fire type thing, and I, it just rubs me the wrong way. You know, even if there's like a five percent chance that there's some injury or or concern in here, it just doesn't feel right to me. Where I want to really invest a first or second round pick, um, even as talented as he may be, um, if they didn't feel comfortable having him play in spring training all the time, that I just can't get around picking him this early
0: how about in the mid rounds who's a batter who could be a bane
1: i picked trey mancini here um i and it, it's weird because i actually went to him because i knew he was having a good spring thinking maybe he'll be my boon um, but when i looked a little bit more closely uh he's having maybe about as much luck as I could have seen. So he has 14 hits on 20 balls in play in spring training. But at the same time, he has 15 strikeouts uh, in just 39 uh, at-bats, and he's striking out 39% of the time. And that just gives me the worries. And we saw him wear down so much at the end of last year where he wasn't even really playing in the playoffs. So I think I want to stay away. From Trey Mancini.
0: How about a late round batter who could be a Bane?
1: I picked uh Jack Swinski of the Pirates here. He's he's going late. It's hard to come up with a late round Bane, but I picked him because he's there's a little bit of a growing buzz. I think that you know he's playing he's gonna probably be the starter in center field for the pirates, but he's having a similar experience to Mancini where he's struck out Uh, 18 times in 39 plate appearances. Um, And so that's really scary to me in in spring training. And uh, so I'm going to stay away from that situation.
0: Seems doubly worrisome in spring training because you're not always facing the other team's top pitching and you're still striking out half the time. It looks a little bit dangerous for sure. Over to the mound again in the early rounds. Tanner, who do you think is a pitcher who could be a bane?
1: I will say Sandy Alcantara here, he's going early, and I don't think this is really an edgy stance, but there's not a lot of early pitchers that do worry me, but he's kind of the opposite possibility from some of the earlier boons I was talking about, where I think he really has playing time downside. Not even saying I think he's going to get Tommy John or anything, but if he gets a hangnail or a blister he's not going to meet his, you know, 210 or 220 innings that some people are projecting him for and so um, even though he's been really healthy i just only see downside really at that innings pitch projection
0: hey don't sell those hangnails short especially if you're in the, <laughs> especially if you're in our business where you do a lot of typing man it can be murder who's a mid-round pitcher who could be a bane
1: Again, probably not an edgy pick, but I picked Tyler Glass. Now Um, I'm pretty conservative by nature, even you know through the mid-round picks, and he's got a discount baked in now because he's already dealing with the injury. But I just can't look at his pitching, his innings pitched counts over the last you know five six years, and I don't I don't get any sense of confidence that I'm going to be able to not be extremely frustrated by owning him, especially if he's starting on the IL, and now I've already tied up a roster spot for a while. Um, can't I can't do Tyler Glass now.
0: And finally, how about a late-round pitcher who could be a Bane?
1: I'm again going to do a weird cop-out answer, maybe, because I was looking at who the late pitchers selected in the main event have been, and I do notice this trend of People picking guys like AJ Minter, Michael King, Raphael Montero. So these guys that I would classify as talented relievers, like we were talking about earlier. Um, which in theory, I think is probably someone saying, you know, I've got that first short period. I want to make sure I get one or two innings pitched. I probably can't find a starter that's gonna go then, but at least I'm hacking the system and I'm getting two Ks or something like that. And just for me, I'd rather use that spot. I'd rather sacrifice those two Ks and, you know, Fulmer's a bad example because it's already a little bit settled there, but take a picture analogous situation to Fulmer where I maybe am, have a big payoff. Um, or if I don't have that big payoff, somebody that I might learn a lot about in that first week, like if there's an outfielder that you think might win a job or, A player that still hasn't been sent down that maybe you're wondering if he's going to make the team. Something like that, like a situation with more profit potential than just those two strikeouts you might get from a reliever like that.
0: Tanner Bell's boons, Alejandro Kirk of Toronto, Ian Happ of the Cubs, the whole Kansas City outfield, uh, Justin Verlander (laughs) of the Mets, Alex Cobb and Taylor Rogers of the Giants. His Baines, Jordan Alvarez of Houston, Trey Mancini of the Cubs, Jack Suwinsky of the Pirates, Sandy Alcantara of Miami, Tyler Glasnow of Tampa, and all those non-closer relievers that you take right towards the end of the draft, Tanner says, maybe think twice. Uh, gosh, this has been fun, Tanner. It always is. Remind us where our listeners can keep up with Tanner Bell's work.
1: Yeah, probably the best place would be on Twitter. My Twitter name is, smart, is at smart fantasy bb. Uh, I do have my own website, smartfantasybaseball.com, or if you are interested in purchasing the process book, the website that you can do that from is thefantasybaseballprocess.com.
0: And uh, I recommend these kinds of things a lot when people come on here, but boy, this book is just, if you, if you like the theories of fantasy baseball, and I I've told people this story before, but I got into fantasy baseball because a friend of mine got me in his league and then the two of us spent hours talking about the theory of it. It wasn't even about the players so much. It was just about which is the best way to approach a trade? How would you approach picking up a guy in this situation, in that situation? And that got me involved in uh, baseball HQ and sabermetrics and all that kind of stuff. So if you like that kind of stuff, or if you just like winning, uh, check out the process at the thefantasybaseballprocess.com. Tanner, thanks a million for helping 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 us out. Uh, I hope you have any uh, any more drafts uh, that they're good ones. If you don't, then I wish you the best of luck with the drafts you've had. And I hope we get to talk to you again during the year.
1: Yes, I truly appreciate you having me on. I hope you have a good season yourself. And thank you again. It's been great to talk to you.
0: Tanner Bell's website is SmartFantasyBaseball.com, and he's a co author of the excellent fantasy baseball guide, The Process. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Wednesday, March 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 7 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Tanner Bell, from SmartFantasyBaseball.com and The Process. Tanner is clearly one of Fantasy Baseball's brightest analysts and a very interesting guy to talk with. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Pocket Cast or iTunes, Spotify, Apple Pods, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News Edition featuring fantasy analysis of the latest news from all around baseball. That's coming up on Friday on a Friday News Edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and for now, so long.
1: The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.
0: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula.